Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today is the last of a summer-long series of podcasts about the system of camps and ghettos that pervaded Nazi Germany, its satellite states, and the regions it controlled. Earlier this summer, I talked with Jeff McGarvey about the Holocaust Museum's Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos, Sarah Helm about the women's camp of Ravensbrück, Nick Vaxman about the evolution of the concentration camp system, and Dan Stone about the liberation of the camps. Today, I'll conclude the series with an interview with Shelley Klein about female guards in the concentration camp system. This is something of a departure for the podcast, which usually focuses on the authors of published books. The material we'll be discussing today is from Shelley's dissertation, completed at the University of Kansas in 2014. While Shelley is still working on translating the dissertation into a published manuscript, the subject fits perfectly into this series of interviews. Her interest in women who served as guards in the concentration camp offers a new angle through which to examine the camp, and the research, frankly, is fascinating, one that made me repeatedly pause and think while I was reading. I think it'll make a great discussion. And so, Shelley, with that, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So let's start out. You just graduated um, with a PhD. Congratulations. Um, how did you end up going to graduate school in something like Holocaust studies? Well, I actually, uh, my interest in the Holocaust started when I was in seventh grade, and I had a <laughs> band teacher actually introduce me to the topic. So it's been a long time, a long time coming. Um, but it was when I was an undergraduate that, um, through a Western civilization course, that I started to be really interested in questions of human nature. And it was also at that time that the same Western Civilization course really prompted me to want more, more education, more of academia. Um, I just wanted more of this exciting intellectual atmosphere. And so sort of those two things coming together about what did I want to do and questions of human nature. And I found myself again with the Holocaust. Um, and so I think that's why I kind of gravitated towards perpetrator studies as well, because it was that question of how we do this to other people, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily how it survives, but how is it that um, humanity enacts these things on, on one another. So that's what brought me to the Holocaust and to graduate school. Okay, so now I've got to ask, what did a seventh grade band director say that struck an interest in the Holocaust? <laughs> well, um, she wanted to do a USO-style spring concert. And yeah. so she told us that there was no way we could understand the music at the time without understanding the history. And so she taught us about World War II. And the part of World War II was, of course, the Holocaust and liberation of the camps. And so that was my, my first introduction, because before that, it wasn't really a part of um, the curriculum at that point yet. Mm-hmm. Now it's so embedded in our school system and curriculum. But when I was in middle school, it wasn't yet. So it was sort of a new, daring thing that this teacher did to to teach us about the Holocaust in a very general way, but enough that it made me interested. 
Huh. You so showed us not the typical story. <laughs> no, well, I, what, one thing I've learned in asking these questions is that there's almost no typical story. It's really quite fascinating. Um, so what made you decide on women guards as a subject for a dissertation? Well, uh, interestingly enough, my same Western civilization professor who um, inspired me to want to go to graduate school, my senior year, I was doing an honors thesis for um, my history degree. And I, I told her, I said, I want to do something on the Holocaust, and I want to do something on women. And she said, well, do you know anything about women guards? And I said, no, I don't. And I don't think anyone else really does either. And yeah. so I looked into it, and it really was, there, there wasn't much written about them. There was a mention here or there, but there wasn't any body of scholarship yet on, on these female guards. So this dissertation and now this book project really came out of a senior honors thesis when I was, you know, an undergrad. So it's been a topic that's been with me for a long time and one that has really evolved as my education has progressed. And so I've been really happy with that, that it's, it's changed as I've changed. It hasn't stayed stagnant. Why? I, I noticed that in your in your lit review, you, you made that point, too, that very few people have talked about this before. Why do you think that is? Well, I think part of the reason is there's so few of these women that actually mm -hmm. served as guards. I mean, 3,500 is the number that we have, so there's not that many. The records that were kept on them were not as complete as the men, so they weren't as high profile. Also, after the war, um, sometimes it was easier for them to evade justice because they weren't tattooed like men were. Um, mm -hmm. So I think they just sort of became forgotten after that post-war moment of the trials. And I can talk about later about how they show up in film, but I think they were just overshadowed by male perpetrators. And then eventually the story shifts historiographically to, to die of the survivors. And so mm -hmm. I think they just kind of got lost. Um, and the fact that there were so few of them you know, contributes to that. Um, and then that it took a long time just for the field of Holocaust studies to even look at the experience of female survivors, um, mm -hmm. I think tells us a lot that, of course, it would take even longer to get to, to that of female perpetrators. So the dissertation is titled, is titled Women at Work, the SS Alsterian and the Gendered Perpetration of the Holocaust. Um, that's an interesting title. What, what, why did you choose that title, and what does it say about the way you interpret the experience of the, the female guards? Well, the title was something that I puzzled over for a long time, and I was pretty happy with how it came out because I wanted to show that this was a job. And throughout the mm -hmm. dissertation, I view the camp as a workplace. And I wanted to highlight the fact that this was a job these women were doing. It was sort of an unusual job, but it was a form of employment. It had the same application patient process, benefits, taxes, everything that has the trappings of modern employment, this job had. And so I wanted to capture that uh, by in the title. So I wanted there to be something about work. And I also like, say for instance, if you Google women at work, if you Google that phrase, one of the things that you get back are images of Rosie the Riveter. And I hmm. thought that was really telling because we see Rosie the Riveter as wartime employment. It's what America's women did. And in some ways, this employment was, was what some of Germany's women did. Um, again, it doesn't excuse what they did in terms of criminal behavior, but in terms of what the state asked them to do in terms of employment, uh, um, it was wartime work. And so I wanted to have a title that captured the employment aspect 
and the normalcy with which they approach this job. So, so let's look at these women. Who were they? How many were there? Where did they come from? Well, there were 3,500 total who served throughout the camp system. They came from various areas of Germany. I would say probably a, I mean, you could safe to say a majority of them came from lower middle and working class backgrounds, agrarian backgrounds. They were not upper class, highly educated women. Um, many of them had jobs perhaps where they were used to harder harder forms of labor, like working on mm -hmm. a farm, the agricultural work, um, hairdressers, factory workers, farm girls, that sort of thing. Um, but pretty average individuals. They were largely single, though some were married, some had children, but the majority of them were single and unmarried. The average age was 26, so we're talking relatively hmm. young women. Mm -hmm. And um, other than that, there's not really anything that stands out to distinguish them um, from any other sector of the of the German population at the time. Did they know what they were applying to do when they applied for this job? Well, that's that's a good question because the ones who there's a distinction between those who applied and then later mm -hmm. on those who were conscripted. So. Once applied early on, the Alferian Corps was created in 1938 um, by Himmler to free up men for more important work. So these women were told they were going to basically oversee female um, inmates and that it was not that physically taxing of a job. So if you think about what the camp system looks like early on, it is mainly a prison system before it evolves mm -hmm. into something else. So the early volunteers believed they were going to be doing some sort of prison guard work. Um, this work paid more than, at least when the other wartime jobs were available, um, this camp guarding work paid, paid more than, say, factory work. So for early volunteers, there was a, a financial incentive, but there wasn't one in terms of respect, really. Um, and the early volunteers, the volunteer numbers didn't, make up for as many women as were needed for the job. So especially around 42 when the camp system really expands, that's when they have to go to conscription. And so people are just, women are conscripted into camp service in the same way they might be to factory work. Um, so many women didn't choose to be in, um, in the camp system. Some of them even, one of the more interesting situations I think are women who were working in factories and then because the factory workers, the factory owners, wanted to make more money, they wanted to employ slave labor. But in order to employ slave labor, they had to have SS overseers. And so they couldn't just have their regular people doing it. So they would send women who had been, say, overseeing other women operating a drill press. They send those overseers in the factory to a short training course. Um, usually in this case, it was pretty short. And then they come back and they, offer, they oversee slave labor, doing pretty much the same job as they'd always been doing. Well, then come the end of the war, all these smaller camps and factory camps are evacuated. Mm -hmm. And these women who were trained to oversee just a small population in a factory now wind up in Bergen-Belsen in a camp that has, you know, tens of thousands of people in a management system that they had never been trained to deal with. So it's kind of interesting hmm. to see how someone might be just 
doing regular factory work, and then by the end of the war, here they are in Bergen Belsen, and then now on trial for war crimes at the end. Hmm. So the first group of these get so so one of the things that I'm struck by as I read your dissertation. It's been a long time since I applied for a job, thank goodness. But <laughs> but I read the, the 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 description you gave, and it sounded normal. It sounded like the way anybody else would apply for a job. So um, what 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 can we learn about that process, and especially what can we learn about the kind, from the kind of training they got after they were done? Well, I I wanted to be like constructed that section with the applying so that it would highlight how ordinary um, this job was because they did have to go through um, a background check to show that they had no criminal background. They had to take a short test to prove that they were literate, that they knew basic mathematics, that they had common sense. One of my favorite questions from the test that they had to take asked them how heavy was a kilogram of iron? And I think that's really telling because it shows they want some common sense, right? It's not just like, can you do this math problem and where does the you begin and end? But can you tell, can you use common sense? So I think they're looking for, the application process does show what type of employee they're looking for. Um, it also reminds us that this was government work. You know, if you were applying for a job with the government today, you'd most certainly have a background check. Um, you know, there's that sort of, trappings of modernity that are in there. So I think it does speak to the ordinariness of the position. Um, and even that criminal background check, they're still conducting those at the end of 44. You know, the war is almost over. The conditions are terrible. And yet they care to conduct a background check to make sure they're not sending criminals to the camp because they don't trust the ordinary citizens to do this government work. So what kind of training do they get? Well, the training varies on the stage of the war. Um, mm. Early on, it might be six months. Later, it might be three weeks. So it really just depends on what stage of the war. I would say about six weeks is probably normal. Most of them trained at Robinsbrook. The training we know consisted of some lectures, some on-the-job training. Uh, one of my favorite documents I found was a picture book that showed typical situations in a camp that might be problematic for training. And it's a picture book and it says, you know, it has a, it's called true and false. So you see an illustration of the wrong way to load people on the train and the right way to load people on the train. So it's very interesting that there was this pictorial guidance. Hmm. But there's a couple things we can learn from the training. One, through this book. One is that all the figures in the picture book are male as are all the prisoners. Even though the book specifically says this is a picture book for training for the Robinsburg concentration camp. It was clearly made for training of women guards in this particular place, and yet everyone shown is is male. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing and speaks to that, which I'm sure we'll get to later, The that adhering to a, a male code, that there was this overlooking of them as, as women. Another one shows... Another one of my favorite pictures shows a group of soldiers escorting some prisoners side to work. And in the in the false version, there's the prisoners and the guards, and there's a pretty lady who rides by on a bicycle. And in this false version, both the prisoners and the guards like check out this pretty girl on the bike. <laughs> and so it's just clearly like, you know, it's a very kind of 
upscale thing. And then in the correct version, of course, everybody's eyes are front. No one pays attention to the to the lady. But a very interesting inclusion and a funny one. But interesting that that seems to be that that speaks to a male humor and also yeah. to a male situation, right? So it's kind of interesting that that made its way in the 36-page long instruction hmm. manual. We can also tell that there wasn't a lot of time officially spent on violence. And so I think what's interesting is one of the things that these women are remembered the most for, which is their use of violence, is one of the things they were trained the least in. So there wasn't a lot of time spent on official procedures of, of how to carry out violence. Um, a person steals a potato. What does that mean? There wasn't that sort of code that was set. It was more um, based on what people saw around them. So I think that can attribute to some of the, in some cases, these women responded with excessive violence. Um, mm -hmm. And as I argue, I think that in part that could be because they were unpracticed and poor decision makers. So not only did they have to decide, yes, this is an infraction, I'm going to punish it, and I'm going to punish it this way. So if you think about an 18-year-old girl at the time, woman at the time, um, hmm. they, they, would have had, they wouldn't have had the same sort of life experiences, managerial experiences, um, as someone older and male um, would have had in a similar situation. So they were, there was a, a level of unpracticed decision-making that I think you can see come through in their, in their camp behavior. So what did they do on a daily basis in the camps? Well, they had a variety of jobs, um, and that's something that I was, I tried to certainly highlight in, in my chapter on work was sort of getting at what it was that they did. Because mm -hmm. when you hear survivor accounts, what you hear is the violence that they used. Mm -hmm. And so we're almost always hearing about the beatings. But in the midst of that, there's, um, I guess we overlook what else they were doing. So they were in charge of overseeing work details, which is where a lot of the beatings happened. They were in charge of detecting work slowdowns, sabotage. Um, and we have to remember that each, each camp was its own little world. Uh, so there were different job sites, different factory work that had to be done in various camps. And so these female guards would oversee prisoners at work at the various tasks. So some of them might be indoors overseeing as, you know, textile factory work. Somebody else might be outside um, on some sort of outside work detail, in which case their job would be less preferable because it would be um, out to the elements. And it seems like there's a, um, people talk about guard being in a bad mood because it was really cold or the weather was bad and things like that. So you can sort of see um, how that the bad work conditions really impact everyone and then how mm -hmm. the guards then sometimes might take that out on the prisoners. Um, kitchen work was another thing that women were in charge of, overseeing prisoners who were cooking food. And of course, the kitchens were you know, sites of violence because food was such a coveted thing. So we do see, especially in the end, especially in Bergen Belson, a lot of the um, beatings and murders and whatnot happen surrounding the kitchens because the, the food store is so low and people are so desperate and starving to, to get that food. So you see that, that clash happen there. So what, one of the things I found really interesting about this is, is the, the argument you're making, at least as I read it, that 
that the behavior of the guards is shaped more by their context than, their by, tra than, than by their training or ideologies. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little about that. In particular, I was stunned by the ratio of guards to inmates, which, yes. which I have to imagine would, regardless of the system or the, the, the governmental structure that you're in, would, would be disastrous. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really shocking when you look at the numbers and see, like, in Auschwitz, that there, you know, there's 71 women who are in charge of guarding 30,000 inmates. I mean, those numbers are just, they're shocking. Yeah. Um, and so I think that understanding the logistics of and you know, manpower of what it meant to be managing these places, mm -hmm. um, I think that gives us a better understanding in some ways of their actions, because if we just, we don't look at the campus as, workplace that had specific challenges, and one of the challenges was overcrowding and understaffing, then some of the behavior doesn't, I'm not saying, when I say it makes sense, I'm not, again, justifying yeah. that they hit people, but the fact that, again, unprepared young women, um, many of whom who'd never hit anyone before, and that's another thing, if we think about the type of um, life experience that women had coming to this environment versus men. Um, not saying that all men had an experience hitting someone, but a military man <laughs> is going to have a different experience with, you know, personal contact and violence than, yeah. say, you know, a 22-year-old woman who does hair in Hamburg, right? She's not going to have that same sort of physical um, preparedness. So I think that for me, really unpacking what this workplace looked like in the context of what became normal in that place mattered a great deal. I think also, too, because these women were trained at Robinsbrook, and for most of the war, it was not a, it had a lot of political prisoners. It wasn't um, a place yeah. that just had, had Jewish prisoners. So I think that I'm not discounting years of anti-Semitism, for sure, that has to play in somewhere. But for them and their training, they were trained in a place which was more about managing a prison population. Um, so I think that, I mean, there was, a, there was some ideology given to them. Uh, but I think what really mattered was this, this context of what they were, they were working in and the real challenges. And you can see some of them adapting to it. And that comes out in the trial when they try and explain why they did what they did. And the, the reasons that they give speak to this context. They speak to you know, the ready admission of, you know, did you hit this woman? Well, yeah, I hit her. Did it hurt? Well, of course it hurt. I meant it to hurt. Why did you hit her? Well, she was stealing. Well, does that justify that? Well, there was very few potatoes and how am I supposed to make 13,000 rations if people keep stealing stuff? So there was just a very, there was a candor to their explanations that spoke to a real uh, desire to explain what they had done. It wasn't about shifting blame. It was about explaining their actions within a context of a world that by the time they're telling this no longer exists and makes absolutely no sense. And in fact, they, they seem ridiculous. Um, but to them, they're speaking to a context of a, of a workplace. Hmm. Um, you talked about the different experience that females and men might bring to this to this job. How did the women guards see themselves as as women in this position? Did they did they see this as a challenge to their authority? Did they try and adjust their expectations to match those of the men? What what difference does it make to be women in this position? Well, I think they have a they definitely have a lot less. Um, okay, so when women join this group when they're conscripted, they're, they're assistants to the SS. They're not actually yeah. SS women. So I tried to make that mm -hmm. distinction 
you know, throughout the dissertation because to call them SS women implies that they were members of the SS when in fact they were they were just the assistants to the SS. Women were prepared for and trained for a job that had an expiration date at the end of the war, at the end of the final solution. Men were trained for a career. Hmm. And so there's sort of a difference in how they're trained and go into this. But most of the women, like I said, when they they enter the the group they're not looking to be movers and shakers and glass ceiling breakers, yeah. right? That's, they're, not, they're not looking to be those type of women. But it's interesting how they're treated, especially in places like Auschwitz. They get the response from men as though they are. And so hmm. here they are, these few women, entering a predominantly male workplace, and the reaction is the same as what we see in several other places in history. Um, you know, there's a resistance from the men. They think that the women showing up somehow lessens their status. Um, their positioning there, and there's also a hesitancy to help the women in their job. And one of the areas that the women struggled with was appell, and that's the the roll call mm-hmm. that they had every day. Mm-hmm. And the women, the roll call in the women's camp started much earlier than that in the men's, even though there were fewer women. Um, mm-hmm. But they they had a real hard time counting all these people. And if you think about it, you know. Third, 30,000 people to count starting at like four in the morning. Um, people are falling down. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. But the women were particularly bad at it. And so some of the guards would go to the male administration and say, this isn't going well. You know, we have to get up half an hour to an hour early. We're struggling. It takes hours and hours and hours. Could, could you help? And the men say, no, you can just wait till the better just hope the war ends soon. There's no help at all. <laughs> um, so it's kind of interesting. In fact, you know, I, I wrote in there that, that Hess says something about they were really bad at this and they ran around like like hens. So yeah. there's this very gendered terminology to how he sees these women trying to conduct a tell. So the men won't help. In fact, they'd rather just they resent them being there, they'd rather see them fail. So they don't yeah. help them. But the women go to female prisoners and find prisoners who have better managerial skills, um, who had had different, you know, life experiences than them, and they co-op those prisoners to help because the prisoners realize the faster we get everyone counted, the faster we're out of this cold Polish winter and the more of a flip. So they were able to find strategies on their own by using prisoners to do their job well when their bosses wouldn't step in and help. And I made that point, especially in the dissertation, because I think um, many of their male colleagues to them as being lazy or stupid and not wanting to do the job. And what you find is a lot of these women wanted to do the job well. Just as anybody in modern employment, if you have a job, you, you, you usually want to do it well. And it had nothing to do with a zeal for extermination or something like that. It was, they, they weren't big thinkers. They saw a right wolf in front of them. I'm charged with doing this. How can I best count people and turn in those numbers? So they, they didn't have a big picture view of what was going on. They just knew what their, their job was. How, how, are they, how are they housed and fed? Are they, are they given the same kind of resources and benefits that men get? Well, they, um, it depended on the camp. Um, in some place like Robinsbrook, there was um, first group housing that they had, and you know they shared the same canteen, 
as men. In Robinsbrook, the, the male officers, it was mainly women and male officers, the male officers had private houses um, that they could keep their families in, and the women had shared quarters. The uniform is a real difference, though. If you look at the, the difference between those, I mean, the male uniforms are designed by Hugo Boss. I mean, they look sharp. They're designed to make people look good and powerful. The women, they never look that great. They always look sort of dumpy. Um, you know, they just got normal <laughs> gray dresses. So I think that that shows a difference in approach of, mm-hmm. you know, where they fit into the whole system. So it's always amusing to me in, in films when they're shown, these female officers are shown in like these snappy SS uniforms. And I think, well, it looks good on film, but it's certainly certainly not the reality of the that great dress that they used to wore. You talk about, um, you point out that at least some of the violence might be, in fact, caused by the female guards trying to gain the respect of, of their male counterparts. Is, am I reading that right? Yes. Uh, and many prisoners, survivors, will talk about a change in the guards' behavior, the female guards' behavior, when a male colleague was around. That they could see their, their behavior change and often become more, more violent. One incident I talk about, uh, one woman, Gina Borman, she has her dog attack a prisoner in front of this, this SS man, and then when it's all over, she points to this wounded woman and says, do you see this? It's my work. I did it. So I think that there is a certain amount of that type of violence used, especially, and that happened in Auschwitz, uh, especially under the conditions of that tension between the male and female guards and this idea that you're not doing your job well, or you can't do the job, um, that there was a certain amount of trying to prove themselves mm-hmm. that happened in that space, which I think is useful because so often when we think about perpetrators, we think of them as a united front. But mm-hmm. when I look at the, the gendered piece of it, you see that especially in a place like Auschwitz, you know, even this project of the final solution isn't so grand that it, it unites everybody, right? There's still these very human tensions on the ground. The government may say one thing and decide that women need to be doing this job because we have a shortage of manpower, but when you put them there in Auschwitz, there's a real human tension between um, between the men and women and how, they, how they're respected. You, you, you mentioned a little bit that this could be perceived by the, by the prisoners. Do you have any sense of from a prisoner perspective, did it matter who was guarding them? Um, did they have a preference? Did, did well, women the, ever guard men at all? The women only guarded women. There was no, okay. women weren't allowed to guard men. There's sometimes, um, say at the end of the war in Bergen-Belsen when everything is a mess, um, sometimes women, women did work in the male part of the camp in the kitchens. And so you, there would be times where a woman who's in charge of the kitchen in the mail compound goes out to the vegetable store and there's a man mm-hmm. stealing. And so you would see that um, sometimes there would be an interaction there. Uh, and in one case in Belson where that happened, this woman sees the man and she hits him really hard and he is unconscious and on trial. Mm-hmm. The prosecutor says, why did you hit him so hard? Tell so he, you know, was unconscious. And she said, I've never hit a man before. I didn't know how hard oh, I had wow. to hit him. Huh. And I thought there was just something so human and honest about that. Because she mm-hmm. was, I think, 22 to 23 at the time. And she just said, I didn't, I've never hit a man before. So I think that, again, that speaks to this messy reality that was their, their workplace. Um, there is 
So women did guard women. Um, I don't know that they had a preference of who was guarding them, but like mm-hmm. I said, they did they did note a change in the women's behavior mm-hmm. um, when men were around sometimes. Well, let's let's shift to the the trials. Um, and and I certainly may have missed something, but this strikes me as, at least to my knowledge, the first time that women are put on trial for war crimes. Uh, how how did the Allies decide to bring the concentration camp staff and guards to trial, and, and how did they happen to include women in these trials? Well, um, there's a lot of the complexities of the post-war trial system are, well, just that complex. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's interesting when you look at what happens there, and there's Oscar declarations and royal declarations and all sorts of complicated mm-hmm. things like that. But what happens is there is this immediate impulse to to try people. So somebody has to, and the Belson trial, which I write about, is so interesting because it happens um, in September through November of 1945. So it's very immediate in the post-war world. And we can learn a lot from it because of that immediacy. It's even before mm-hmm. Nuremberg. Most people just go straight to Nuremberg, and, and that overshadows something like Belson. But Nuremberg was about a system, and the smaller camp trials, particularly Belson, was about the individual involved in, in the camp. So this really was a Holocaust trial in ways that um, Nuremberg wasn't as much in some ways. So um, what is interesting is that the women do get included, um, and listening to some of the newsreels that advertise, these trials are really interesting for that reason, too, because um, there, there's a sense that uh, of shock that women are involved, mm-hmm. but also by highlighting that women were involved, it highlights the real uh, how bad must the system have been if this if mm-hmm. the women are involved. So it's an indictment of the whole Nazi system if their women are willing to do this as well. And so it's interesting that the Allies did very unquestioningly just put these women on trial and see them as having an equal hand in the running of these camps in ways that the Nazi system didn't. And in some ways, I think that that's why many of these women were eager, even, to explain what they had done. And mm-hmm. so when they're put on trial and the prosecution you know, says, were you responsible for this and this and this? And they're like, yes, yes, I was. Um, <laughs> and you see that happen both at Belson and then in one of the Robinsburg trials. One woman, Dorcia Benz, she... I uh, was the leader of that camp. And she shows a lot of ownership in her um, in her descriptions, but from a very managerial standpoint, that she understood how this camp worked um, and was good at running it. And so to have someone recognize that, there was almost a satisfaction in explaining the, how these pieces work together. Um, because there was always a parallel system of, of a male chain of command over the women, so they didn't have the same sort of autonomy and agency. And again, since their their male bosses were often questioning them, for the allies to just walk in and assume that they had the responsibility mm. that they did was, was kind of interesting because it it was not personally advantageous for them to admit to these things, but they they did it. Did the men were the men on trial as honest as the women? They were not, and that was the trial section was one of my favorites to work on because I found it so fascinating these different strategies 
that the men and women had and the different ways that they were approached uh, by the prosecution. So, for one, the, the prosecution, even from the first day when they're introducing uh, the defendants, they, when they're talking about male defendants, they say, so-and-so served here from this time to that time. Very matter-of-fact. When they talked about the women, there was often a, she served here, she's accused of doing this, she will hear from many cruelties. And so there's sort of an introduction to her crimes. And the prosecution used the word cruel and cruelty um, at least nine times in his introduction to, to the women defendants. So it's interesting that from the very beginning, they were assigned um, cruelty and an enjoyment of their crimes in a way that, that was never put on the men. So when it comes to the actual trial, um, the men were much better at denying things. They didn't offer extra explanations. It was more straightforward. The women tended tended to give lengthier, more detailed, often more incriminating descriptions of what they had done in this bizarre attempt to describe what their job had been. They didn't understand when they should lie or what they could lie about. Hmm. So they might be very upfront about hitting somebody, but then when asked, did you see any dead bodies in Belson, they said no. Well, obviously there were 13,000 unburied bodies when the British rolled it. So yes, in fact, you did see some dead people, um, <laughs> but they, that, doesn't, that doesn't click in their heads like, oh, this is absurd. No one will believe this. Mm-hmm. So they didn't understand when it was advantageous to lie. They have too many explanations. Uh, so that was kind of interesting to see that the men were better at denial. Um, they just navigated it with more, a more savvy perspective, which, again, I argue comes from the fact that they were often a little older, better educated, just had more world knowledge than some of these, mm-hmm. these women did who really didn't have life experience to, to teach them sort of this is when you... This, you know, no one's going to believe you in this case, or how do you navigate a legal system? They, they, didn't, they didn't understand that. Or they missed cues, one of my favorites. Uh, this woman misses a giant cue softball from her defense attorney when he says, well, you look kind of like this other lady who's not on trial here. We can't find her. You look, you look very similar. So isn't it possible that you were often confused by prisoners? So probably when this lady says she saw you beating this person, it wasn't you. It was the lady who looks just like you, right? And the woman on trial says, we look nothing alike. No one ever confused us. You know, it, it's obviously he's leading her mm-hmm. to just say, oh, yeah, it was, it was so-and-so. She's not on trial here. It was, it was her. It was that woman. But instead, the woman answers honestly with, didn't look anything like me. So it's interesting <laughs> to see that, that poor navigation and complete, complete missing of, the, uh, of what could have been help. And, that legal and so strategy that re- was offered to her. What are the results? How many of the how many of them were convicted, and how does that compare to the men? Well, I most I looked most closely at the Robinson trial, and the Belson trial. In the Belson trial, eighty four percent of the women were convicted versus just fifty percent of the men, which is pretty shocking considering mm-hmm. these people are doing exactly the same thing, and men had more agency uh, and latitude in their, in their job. So, given the fact that if you look really at the crimes that they were accused of. It's the same. But when you look at the sentences that were passed, the women got a much, they were convicted more, um, more readily. It's also interesting that at the very end, the defense attorneys try and use a gendered angle to, to help the women. 
And so one of them suggests that, well, maybe this lady in the kitchen was beating people there because she was just an agitated woman who was upset because the food was cooked improperly. Um, or maybe Irma Grease, you know, she beat other prisoners because they were prettier than her and they were, they were, you know, she was jealous, something like that. So they try and do this weird using gender, um, but it doesn't work. Um, it it doesn't work at all. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And then the first three people that are executed in the West for the crimes of the Nazi system were three women. So it's kind of interesting that of the Belton trial, they, they very much did a ladies first. And the three women of Belton were executed before um, the men were. So um, I learned a new word uh, reading your dissertation. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Nazi exploitation? Yes, Nazi exploitation. I'd never heard of this genre of film. Um, can you talk about this and, and, and why it matters? Well, it's a, <laughs> this is something that I found sort of later in the process of of researching my dissertation. It's an interesting genre that sprung up in the 1970s and the exploitation genre was popular. Mm-hmm. And it was preceded by a version of a genre of literature that was particularly popular in Israel called Stalag literature. And the premise is basically the same. These are, um, what would you say? It's a genre, it was a sort of graphic novels in its, in its literature form, but they often feature um, a concentration camp setting and camps that are staffed with women, and then these women are excessively cruel, and then eventually the male prisoners rise up and usually kill these women in violent and sexual ways. Hmm. So it's an interesting genre that's difficult to watch if you try to watch any of it. It's an intersection of horror and pornography is really where it's situated. So it's it's a lowbrow genre that wasn't ever super mainstream, but it did have some mainstream influences. And interestingly, a lot of the people who produced this Nazi exploitation had ties to um, the Signal Corps film group of the armed forces. Huh. So some of them had worked on putting together some of this atrocity film taken from the liberation of the camp. Um, that worked on putting that into different versions of film for preservation and newsreel purposes. And so they had some experience with this actual footage. And then they go on to be filmmakers, and many of them worked in this genre of Nazi exploitation. So it's interesting because uh, what struck me about it and why I included it yeah. was some of the imagery that's used. The most famous of these films is called Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. And Ilsa is largely drawn on inspiration from Irma Grease, who was one of the women um, tried and executed during the Belton trial. Irma was, and Irma, if anyone knows anything about Nazi Mm -hmm. women guards, it's often Irma Grease. So she was 21 when she was executed. She was pretty attractive. She was also very sassy during the trial. She was accused of Mm -hmm. awful, awful things. But she's mouthy. She's really mouthy during the trial, and most of the press coverage features her. So she's featured in the press heavily during the Belson trial. They talk about her hair. They talk about her clothes. They talk about the terrible crimes she committed. So she's, this image of her is in the public eye. So it's interesting that when the Stalin fiction and Nazi exploitation comes up, it's a version of Irma Grease that gets resurrected, and even the name is similar. 
you know, Irma, Ilsa, it's not all that far mm-hmm. off. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of similarities in, in terms of that character. Um, but what struck me about this is these women are highly sexualized in the exploitation genre, and they usually die terrible, sexually violent deaths. And so it's, it's interesting that there's this sort of revenge taken out um, on this person, this, this, the, the fictional female German, mm-hmm. German female body, um, in a way we didn't see that happen in the West. But as we know, when the Soviet troops came through, there was a real um, yeah. drive to make German women pay for the crimes of Nazi Germany. So it's interesting that you almost see like a fictional version of this happen in Nazi exploitation. Um, and then there's the factor that this also gives an audience to an excuse to enjoy extreme violence against women because, of course, they deserve it. They're torturing Nazis, right? So it's a complicated genre. And to me, I found it troubling because you don't really see any depictions of these women until this Nazi exploitation genre, yeah. largely misbased on Irma Grieves, um, but hypersexualized. And I think that that's, that's problematic, uh, both from a historical point of view and then also from um, a feminist one. What does this mean that we have this genre that allows it and using Nazis in, in that way to enjoy extreme violence against women. So how have, um, how have recent depiction of women guards in film about the Holocaust, how, how have directors and, and, and writers treated, treated them more recently? Well, it's interesting that no movie has really focused on them. They're always sort of yeah. a background character. Hmm. And I argue in a couple of, of Smaller films like Out of the Ashes, you see hints of this Nazi exploitation in terms of how the character Herman Grease is portrayed, um, the sexual tension that's present in that film between her and the character of Bengala, when we don't have any historical evidence that they had any sort of relationship. Um, there's a lot of heightening of sexuality that you, you see in some of these films. And there's also uh, highlighting the deviance. So these women are always often shown to be deviant, either sexually deviant or somehow um, deviant in another way. The Reader is a movie that probably has the most, um, it's the most current movie that features a female guard the most, uh, even though it's not really about her, right? The title Mm -hmm. is The Reader, it's not The Red 2. But somehow people expect it to be about her when really it's it's about the, the man who she was involved with and his take on everything. But even in that one, this woman is, she was a former guard, and yet we also have to know that she's deviant, right? She's deviant because she has this affair with a very young boy. She's deviant. She's shown to be a mother figure to him, but then also seduces him, so she's a deviant mother. Um, there's a lot of ways the film signifies her as being deviant. And so I think that it's unfortunate that the stories of these women as female perpetrators is not one that's ever really focused on. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that either is in the background or you might see in you know, Schindler's List, you'll see 10 female guards running with a group of yeah. prisoners. But that's it. They're just in the background. They're never, mm-hmm. they're never focused on. Um, and so I think that's an unfortunate. Um, it's unfortunate because those are rich stories about perpetration that could be, uh, could be represented. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. A couple last kind of concluding questions kind of about the dissertation. Um, 
And one of them is that, as, as I read it, um, I can feel your sympathy. At least that's what I see in your work. Um, and I'm wondering, and, and, it's, and that's a kind of emotion that you don't really, or empathy that you don't really see on the page very often. Um, how do you, how did you come to that perception of the, your subjects? Well, or is that want, a mischaracterization? Well, I wanted to show them as human. And I think for mm -hmm. me, the real humanizing moment came when I was doing my research and I was at the archive in Robinsburg. And when you're, you're at the archive, you're also, you can stay there. So they've made the former SS barracks into hostels. So I was mm -hmm. staying and living and working in the same space of the people that I, I was studying. And one day, after a long day in the archive, I was sitting back in my room, and I was typing an email home. And I paused, and I looked up out the window. And I thought, this is the exact thing that they did. They were writing letters mm -hmm. home, and I'm sure they paused in the middle, you know, to find, find the next sentence. They paused just in the middle of the paragraph to find their next sentence. And they looked out the window. What did they see? You know, looking out towards the other houses. Did they see women coming home from the camp? Did they hear music playing like I was hearing? Mm. Did they, was their laundry hanging out? You know, what was, it just was such a, an interesting moment of lightly floating in that reality. And in that moment, they became women of the 1940s that were away from home, in a peer group, engaged in this war work. Mm. And it was a bizarrely humanizing moment to, to see them that way. And so I wanted in my work to show the human side. I mean, clearly, they committed great acts of violence and brutality, and this doesn't forgive that. But understanding isn't forgiving, and I think that in order to really get at how genocides happen, we have to understand that it is humans that are perpetrating them. And so to me, um, I could see them as women of the 1940s who were in a job, and then I tried to look at the pressures of that job and certainly the, the gendered aspect was, was something that, that came out of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I do have a, a well, sympathy is the right word, but um, I don't know what you'd call it. But there is, there is an attempt to get at what their reality was for them and to understand mm -hmm. that even though they were perpetrators, they didn't have the same level of agency as, say, another type of perpetrator might, that they too were acted on by parts of their system. So they were they were they were part of a bigger system, and within that they were allowed certain choices, and they certainly had the choice in what they could do in their everyday lives in the camp. They made a choice to use violence, um, and they should be held accountable for that. But what were the pressures of that workplace that that led to them making those choices? Well, I always ask um, ask my guests to to suggest. A film I should watch, or a, a book I should read this weekend, and the unlikely opportunity that, or unlikely chance I get my grading done. How should I spend my Saturday afternoon? What would, what, what's something that's really meaningful for you? Well, there's a couple of, uh, I always like to think in terms for Holocaust films. There's a couple of films that I really um, like in terms of the Holocaust. One is an older one, which is The Counterfeiters, and I often tell my students that hmm. it's a, a good film that takes place in a Holocaust that isn't a, doesn't try to be about the Holocaust. Mm. Um, and being an Austrian film, I think it really deals with the gray zones of the Holocaust in a way that a lot of American cinema doesn't. 
Um, and so I really like that for bringing out some of the, the nuances and the messiness of, of what the camps look like. And the other one is I just saw on Friday, actually, called Phoenix. Hmm. And it's about a woman, a survivor, who comes back from the camp and has had to have facial reconstructive surgery because of a, a gunshot wound. And she's sort of trying to find her old life, and then her old life finds her. So it's a really interesting film about what it means to return to society and how society at the time really didn't want to talk to survivors or weren't, interest, weren't interested in their experiences. And then just what does this post-war, this very immediate post-war um, Germany look like? So it's one I just saw, but one that I thought had a lot of really interesting points. Um, and I think she would be useful with the students for expressing some of these things. Well, I know I won't get my grading done, but, but I wish I would. <laughs> and if I would, I'd go watch those movies. So thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing right now you're working hard on turning this into a book? I am. That is that is the project at hand. So I've been, been working on that. I just did some more research when I was in London recently. So I'm trying to incorporate that and, uh, and get it turned into the book manuscript as, as fast as I can. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and best of luck on getting the book done, and I hope somewhere down the line we'll have a chance to talk to you on the show again. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Excellent. Well, take care. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Shelley Klein about her 2014 dissertation titled Women at Work, the SS Aufseherin and the Gendered Perpetration of the Holocaust. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with Adam Rosenblatt about his new book, Digging for the Disappeared, Forensic Science After Atrocity. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.